a student of leadership, I relish experiencing, hearing about, and from good, no, great leaders. I've worked for several. Sometimes I was one. What makes a good, great leader? They strategize with their team and their customers. They encourage and appreciate their staff. They hire for diversity of lived experience and ways of thinking about the world. And they get stuff out of the way of good people doing their good work. My friend, Dr. Kiami Mahania, is a good, great leader and CEO of the Lynn Community Health Center, a federally qualified health center, FQHC, near me. Kiami and I meet monthly in a book club and often discuss healthcare, healthcare advocacy, and issues of health equity. FQHCs sit on the sharp point of health equity and community-centered care. Need a barometer of the health of our healthcare system? Check out your local FQHC. According to the Health Resources and Services Administration, HSRA, FQHCs are community-based and patient-directed organizations that deliver comprehensive, culturally competent, high-quality primary healthcare services to the nation's most vulnerable individuals and families, including people experiencing homelessness, agricultural workers, residents of public housing, and veterans. Health centers integrate access to pharmacy, mental health, substance use disorder, and oral health services in areas where economic, geographic, or cultural barriers limit access to affordable health care. By emphasizing coordinated care management of patients with multiple health care needs and the use of key quality improvement practices, including health information technology, health centers reduce health disparities. I need to let you know that I've started publishing a little less frequently as I explore adding video to my menu of media options. I've gone from written blogs 10 years ago to audio podcasts five years ago to now videos. The technology and workflow are more complex and I'm a novice, so please bear with me. My written edition is in the transcript in the show notes. I transcribe video first for video captions, then for the printed word. I use music throughout my audio and video productions. You'd think I have audio production down by now, but my audio quality has been uneven recently. Unfortunately, it took recording two interviews poorly before I realized the problem. Read the transcript or check out the video on YouTube if that helps. My apologies and my appreciation for you hanging in there with me. So, let's meet Dr. Kiami. Welcome to Health Hats, the podcast. I'm Danny Van Loon, 
a two-legged, cisgender, old white man of privilege who knows a little bit about a lot of health care and a lot about very little. We will listen and learn about what it takes to adjust to life's realities in the awesome circus of healthcare. Let's make some sense of all of this. Yami Bihania, how are you? So glad you joined us. Thank you. I'm honored to have been invited to be on Health Hats. Thank you. Thank you. I've been looking forward to the opportunity to talk to you for some time. So why don't we start with telling us a little bit about uh, when did you first realize that health was fragile? I grew up in the Congo. I don't think I can remember a single time since I've had a conscious self where I didn't think that life was extremely fragile. I think growing up in a country where infectious disease is still, infectious disease are probably the top five reasons that people die. I had relatives who had polio. It was very clear that life itself was very fragile. But also was very clear from having spent my childhood in the Congo and then my teenage years in Switzerland, it was also very clear that a lot of that fragility and vulnerability is so related to the circumstances and the systems that surround you. Because I moved from a place where kids die of dehydration from cholera uh, and to a place in Switzerland where essentially nobody dies from infectious disease under the age of 75. And so I think... I've always been I've always been very cognizant of how fragile uh, humans are, but it's also what underlay what underlies my interest in working in the health center movement, because I've always been interested in okay, given that we're humans, whatever system we design is going to have cracks, and so I'd like to have I'd like to dedicate my life towards working in those cracks, right? Like how do I reduce the size of those cracks? How do we address the depth of those cracks and how many people are falling in those cracks? So obviously doing it in the U.S. is way easier than doing it in the Congo where I grew up. It doesn't matter what society you're in, there's going to be cracks. So I think I've always known that life is fragile. I think it's only really recently in the last, I'd say, 10 or 15 years that I've realized just that the system isn't random. Like that a system punishes certain people, certain types of people more than others. So I think that you, if you're not cited, it's a really difficult system to use. If you don't read, it's really difficult uh, to mm-hmm. navigate the system. And I would say that if you don't have an infinite amount of patience, it's really difficult to navigate the system as yeah. well. So I think yeah. certain personalities are just not suited for it. And that's not that's without even getting into ableism and race and ethnicity and right. It's just so like on, on the face of it, we have a very difficult system to use. And so the health center and Lynn and health centers everywhere, we really specialize in selecting, okay, which of those groups do we want to work with to make their life easier? Oh, it's there's so much in what you just said. In my career, I was a lot of my career was in performance improvement, and 
when I went from being a student of individual health as a nurse and then as an administrator to a student of organizational health, I built my career around cracks because the opportunities are in the cracks. And I felt, um, you know, so some days I thought of them as cracks. And if I was a little more positive, I would think of them as threshold. I know it depends on my frame, but still. And then the other a piece of what you said that I think is really interesting is that the metaphor really works is flow. And that I know I looked um I looked on this on your the website for the Lynn Community Health Center and I saw that who's on first blog, which who's on first is probably to me and my grandsons the some of the funniest works ever. I I've seen it a thousand times and I still just, it's a gut splitter. But I saw that what you talked about in it was the seven flows of healthcare. And if I'm recalling them, patient, family, staff, medicine, supply, equipment, and information. And I was, we could spend hours on any one of those, but I was wondering about information. Because you started with, if you're cited and you can, if you're not cited and you can't read, so you're blind or you can't read, you're really screwed. So then information is like, you know, then it's oral. But anyway, so how does that, like, how does that flow, the information flow, like in your work is... CEO of a health center. So this is a federally qualified health center, right? That is correct. Okay, so we could talk about what that means in a minute. But what, like, how does your work, like, how did, what does a CEO have to do with that? I think that, like I mentioned before, systems determine so much of what happens, right? What what surrounds you determines, right? As, as the research shows, like, you don't even decide how much food you eat. That's decided by the size of the plate and the color of the plate. And it's so amazing, these things that we think we control, but it just, if you're in a setting, you'll just do something because you're primed by that setting. And so I think the CEO's job is really to figure out, okay, what are the settings that would allow for teams to better engage patients and have patients experience more convenience and more at more sort of empowerment. And as an example, how do you make it so that what the patient cares about at that particular moment when they come to the office, how do you make it so that the care team focuses on the things that the patient cares about? And that's information flow, right? And so if, for instance, your systems are so bad that it makes the patient late or your systems are frustrated enough that the patient comes in and they're mad about something and so they 
forget half of what they really wanted to talk about because you're just concentrated on how rude X person was. Or they don't necessarily have the, or let's say they just came out from a hospitalization. And what they really want to talk about is how confusing that hospitalization was. So that, is that information available to the team? Do they know that the patient was hospitalized? Are they able to, did somebody talk to the patient ahead of time? So they would be like, oh, yeah, I bet Danny was confused by this and this. And so, right, that's what I call the information flow. And those are the things that as CEO can really impact, right? What kind of data systems do we have? How much time? is allocated to the patient? What kind of supports happen before the patient even shows up? What are we investing in? And like you mentioned, the the concept of the opportunity, right? You can either think of it as like a crack or you could think of it as all this opportunity to improve things. So there's a huge amount of opportunities. And really, as I would say that as CEO, my biggest job is deciding for the institution, okay, of the 17 things that we could be working on that are really important to patients, this year we're going to work on these three, right? And so by yeah. by default, it means not ignoring the other 14, but it means that whenever you have limited resources like time or money, you're first going to go towards those three priorities that you've chosen. So I think my biggest job is A, determining priority of the institution, and then I would say B is being a cheerleader. Really, I think as human beings, we often were primed to devalue what we do. Uh, we don't think of all the amazing things that we accomplish every day in our one-on-one context, particularly for those of us who work in healthcare and in institution where you're taking care of very challenging situations. We get inured to the magic of what we do, right? Like people show up desperate or they think they have something terrible or they know they have something terrible or their kid has something terrible. And your job is to either reassure them or provide them with the tools by which they can grasp what's happening to them. And I think we, so I would say that 20, at least 20% of my job is cheerleading. It's just like telling people, you're doing great. You're amazing. You do great work. Let's Mm -hmm. keep going. What, yeah, do you yeah. need to do, what do you need to do more amazing work? So I spent a lot of my time negotiating contracts. I spent a lot of my time looking at data. I spent a lot of my time looking at our safety event system, right? At the reports to figure out, okay, there's now a pattern, right? Mm-hmm. If you see in the space of three months that you got seven reports of the nurses saying that somehow when they're giving the injections, the needle breaks or whatever, you're like, okay, we must have changed we must have changed manufacturers and the needles. It's time to go back to buying the old needles. So yeah, so I would say that I really, I see my job as trying to eliminate barriers for the people that do the frontline work. Yeah, yeah. You're speaking my language. And my first, my first clinical supervision job was as a ICU manager. And I had never been a manager before and I'd never worked in an ICU. And I had taught, <laughs> uh, I, had, I had set up an ACLS program, Advanced Cardiac Life Support, that the ICU nurses had taken. So this was quite a while ago. 
And the ICU manager left and they came to me and said, we want you to be our manager. And I said, that's crazy because I've never been a manager and I don't know the ICU. And they were like, I'll teach you the ICU and you'll be a fine manager. And so I, I got the job and I realized really quickly that they didn't take breaks. The staff didn't take breaks. They would work all day without breaks and lunch. And so it was like my first my first staff meeting was, hey, we're smart people. We can take breaks. How are we going to do it? And it was the just setting up systems so that they could have a a healthy however many hours they were, whether it was eight or 12 hours in the unit. And I was surprised. And then I started discovering they had a lot of bladder infections, which, you know, <laughs> was so I wasn't expecting. But anyway, the point being that the that getting stuff out of people's way so that they can do their jobs. Yeah, that's really big. Now, you went from you were a staff position at and then you became CEO. That's a short version, yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I was a staff physician and I was in Lawrence at the time. Okay. When we first moved to New England. And then uh-huh. I became an, and then I became an attending physician, which was teaching residents and students as part of my job. Then I became involved in quality improvement. Mm-hmm. Like you, that was my path to leadership. And then I became the medical director of a small site of a small team. Then eventually I became the associate chief medical officer. And then I left Lawrence and I became CMO. And then uh, four years later, I, I became CEO. So it's been this progression. Yeah. And I would say it wasn't a planned progression. Uh, my passion clinically was substance use disorder treatment. Okay. And and I quickly realized that, that there's so much stigma in that arena that to quote Al Capone, you do you can do more with a smile and a gun than just a smile. And so I realized that having authority meant that I I could get my substance use disorder treatment programs up and running faster. So that's really what attracted me to leadership was, oh, if I'm the boss, I can do more of the things that I think should be done. And then that's led me. And I really, the reason I jumped to the CEO, and this might be interesting for your podcast listeners, is that MassHealth, which is the organization in Massachusetts that runs Medicaid, was on the verge of moving from a fee-for-service program for institutions like ours to a capitated value-based payment program. And that had been the holy grail of primary care, and particularly for those of us who work in disenfranchised communities, that had been the holy grail for the last 50 years. And so I felt, oh, I'd love to be in a high enough leadership position when this happens that I can really impact uh, the system. Okay, so I'm interested in the the substance abuse angle. So 
I spent a bunch of my career in behavioral health, whether it was integrated substance abuse program or behavioral health managed care in a performance improvement, like director or VP of performance improvement. But um, so it, part of being a federally qualified health system is that, and you have to correct me if I don't have this right, is there's more of a focus on the integration between behavioral health, substance abuse, and mental health, and physical health. Is that true? Yes. So our federal overlords who are in HRSA, this is something that they've been pushing within the patient-centered medical home, Okay, which is really the thing that was big like 20 years ago. Um, and so they evolved into, yes, how do you integrate? How do you integrate a holistic approach to the patient? Yes. So behavioral health and particularly injecting substance use disorder treatment to make that part of your regular routine care is a bit was a big emphasis of HRSA. So yes, you're correct that you'll see federally qualified HRSA. health. What's care. HRSA? HRSA, I don't even know what it stands for, health, but it's health, health resource oh. service administration or something yeah, like that. They're part of a CMS, which is yeah. Medicare. But yeah, and they're the federal branch that makes all the rules for us in the health center okay. world. Yes. And so you'll, if you sort of sampled ambulatory care facilities across the U.S., you'd realize, oh, that's weird. Why are so many, why is so much behavioral health based in federally qualified health center? Why is so much substance use disorder treatment based in community health centers? So it's partially because of that influence. But the other part of it is that um, as you know, from being in healthcare, you have to spend about 23 minutes in a medical office before you realize that, oh, wow, everything is about mental health. <laughs> like it, after the most dense person realizes that very quickly. Yeah. Uh, and then I love substance use disorder because it's neither mental health nor medical, right? If you just take one side of it, you'll miss the other. Like there's no, this sort of, division that we inherited from the Greeks of the mind on one side and the body on the other really falls apart when you're talking about substance use disorder. And because we have that dichotomy in our model, we don't really understand substance use disorder. But we don't understand something that is so intertwined that it's both and more. And so it's one of the reasons that I think we have a really hard time in our current system treating it, is that it challenges the very basics of how we look at healthcare. I think it's partially why I enjoy it so much. It's such a yeah. it's such an interesting field. I love the existential conversations mm -hmm. I have with my patients. Now, it is hard because we succeed only about 60% of the time, meaning that in 60% of our patients, they are sober, they build their lives, they reconquer their demons, and they're able to achieve, they, they can be closer to the person that they always wanted to be. But 40% of our patients don't make it, and a huge proportion of those of those patients die. And so it is also a high stakes. It's like a high stakes endeavor. And you say the same thing about diabetes and high blood pressure? That yeah, you know, 80% I've 
or makes you some number that's not a hundred percent. Yes. Yeah, you're correct. You're, you're your numbers, right? Like an excellent, an excellent ambulatory care facility. Yeah. They have a 65, 70% success rate with their with patients who have diabetes or patients who have high blood pressure. And that's like a top notch right. uh, health system. So that means that it's just less dramatic in diabetes, right? Because it takes 20 years to develop blindness. It takes 25 years to develop kidney damage and another 30 years to have an amputation as opposed to substance use disorder where it happens in two, three, four years. Mm -hmm. But yes, it's the same issue. Healthcare, as an example, Danny, I think it's so weird that we have one-on-one -on -one visits. If I'm having one-on-one -on -one visits with my patients with diabetes and I'm thinking, they probably are not even the one who shops for the food. They're not right. the one who cooks. Like, why am right. I talking to them? Right. <laughs> I, should, totally. I should be bringing in whoever is in their family, in their circle, who does, who's involved in, like, deciding what to buy and what to cook and how to cook and everything. But it's, it's intriguing to me that even our EMRs, like, we have a top-of-the-line EMR here at the health center, and yet I wouldn't be able to go into my EMR and say, who's in Danny's family? And have... And show up, and your son show up. Like it wouldn't happen, even if they were patients of the health center. And right? yes, and so I would say that one of the reasons I love substance use disorder so much is that it's a distillation of the problems we have in chronic disease management in general. It's we know that oh, if we damage people as kids, they're much more likely to use drugs. But do we take steps to undamage kids? Not really. We're like that's how it is. And that's how it is in healthcare in general. Right? Like we, we know that, for instance, not clearing snow from sidewalks in poor communities in the winter means that nobody's going to walk, which means there's all these other side effects that happen when you don't exercise. But we still routinely run out of money in poor communities to clear snow. And yeah, uh, you're correct that all chronic disease actually is mental health and and medical combined, but we choose to separate them. And then further, we isolate, right? We say, oh, diabetes is different from hypertension. It's different from lupus. It's different from, right, to try to get a hold on it, as opposed to thinking, what does this patient need? Mm -hmm. Now a word about our sponsor, Abridge. Record your healthcare conversations with doctors and other clinicians with a bridge. Push the big pink button and record. Read the transcript or listen to clips when you get home. Check out the app at abridge.com, A-B-R-I-D-G-E.com, or download it on the Apple App Store or Google Play Store. Let me know how it went. Another thing I noticed when I looked at your website was that that you uh, you had have a temporary close on Sunday visits because you're having staffing issues, and it seems like everything you're talking about so depends on your staff that you as a CEO are. 
you have to have people to cheerlead. Yes. And so, um, that, yeah, that's why I do so much cheerleading, because we need people to stay. Yeah. Could you talk a little bit about that? What's that? Wow. I would say it's several different things. So this is where I'm putting my what my coach calls uh, MSU at, where it's make stuff up, except she doesn't say stuff. She says a word that ends with H-I-T. But uh, <laughs> so I think that number one, because we're traditionally under-resourced, we pay people generally between 15 and 25% less than the private world. So essentially, people work here because they believe in the mission. And so as long as you're in that 10 to 15% range, you can keep people. But when the market changes, and we're talking about a 30% difference, then it's hard. So they, for so COVID surprised us in the sense that suddenly, boom, nurse prices and behavioral health salaries just zoomed out there. And it caught us by surprise, and we lost a lot of people that were just like, well, it's a 30, 40% difference. I got to go. Sorry. Which is understandable. Yeah. Second, I think that the pandemic really tired healthcare. It really made people tired. So even if we have the people as staff employees, we have about five times more people on leave now than we used to pre-COVID, like on long-term leave, long-term leave. And that's that's a big number, right? That's a big number, five times as many people. So that's an issue. Then the other thing I would say is when we think of healthcare, we think of nurses, we think of physicians, right? We think of, because that's what, who we see on TV. But healthcare is 80% not people like that, right? Yes. It's 80% facilities guys, community health workers, receptionists, medical assistants, recovery coaches, like enrollment yeah. navigators, like it's right. And a lot of those people worked at the health center because we're in their community. It was a good job in the community. They didn't sign up to put their patients, their families at risk during a pandemic. They love our mission and they feel proud of it, but they're here because it's a good job. They're not here to be frontline cannon fodder. So part of it is also that we essentially, a lot of people recalibrated and they're like, if I want to make $20 an hour, I might as well go be assistant manager at Market Basket because I'm not dealing with pandemic and sick people. And so I think that the pay differentials, the fatigue, and then just general anxiety about the next epidemic has made it difficult to maintain staffing. And so we have, for the first time in our history at the health center here, we have several hundred people waiting for every single one of our services. Whether it's vision, dental, therapy, psychopharmacology, substance use disorder, medical, enrollment, like helping people get insurance, all of those services have, some are terrible. Like our wait list for therapists is just unbelievable. So some society also changed during the pandemic and we're not able to keep up. Wow. That sounds a lot of stress. Yes. 
I've also learned to not take on stress of things I can't control. <laughs> like right, I can right. increase people. I can increase people's salaries to hope to keep them more. I can cheerlead them. We can give people breaks. So like last summer, we did Fridays in the summer. So three Fridays, everybody had off as extra. And we arranged for it to be in front of Monday holidays. So that everybody in the health center last summer, three times during the summer, had four-day weekends, right? Which we tried to do things like that. But I can't control whether or not some private startup is paying almost twice as much as we do. And I can't control uh, the fact that people need to take care of their families and need to go on leave, right? So we adjust. And I think that we have such a supportive community that they understand that if we're closed on Sundays, it's just because we couldn't be open, right? It's not like we're making more money or we have no, uh, our community trusts that we have no malicious intent they know we're doing the best we can and but yes it, i would say that is a it's a major morale it's a major negative morale factor in our staff right now it's just knowing that no matter how much you do you're not going to be able to help everybody who needs your help and that particularly for people in behavioral health that is a that is just it's a killer. Like, it's just a terrible because you know how many people are suffering out there with mental illness. And to just be like, yeah. we don't have the space to help you. You might be suicidal. You might be psychotic. You might, but we don't have the space to help you. And you're asking for help. Like, that is just a really, and, I, and I, paradoxically enough, it makes people leave, even though they know it's going to make it worse if they leave. But it's, they just can't handle that disappointment. Yeah. What should we have talked about that we haven't? I think system-wise, really. And I've been saying this ad nauseum to whoever has power that I can. We pay for our police officers to become police officers. We pay for our soldiers to become soldiers because we think of it as a service. And I really think that social workers, particularly social workers who are therapists, they should be in the same category. I think teachers should be in the same category. Like it should just be that, I think it's amazing that we make therapists pay for their training, but it should be part of the service, right? Like you wanna be a social worker? It's like being a police officer or a soldier, we pay for it. So I think we really have to start looking and what does it mean for us to invest in the foundations of our healthcare in terms of daycare providers and what, what does it mean? So I think that we have, because people always were, were free market capitalism in the U.S., that people often forget that when Adam Smith was talking about the visible hand of the market, he was always preceding it by saying, assuming that your people are working in a moral framework, right? Like assuming that you have an ethical, moral framework that people are working out of, you can trust the free market to have the visible hand. And I think that we really have to like relook at those values because just having a free market doesn't guarantee you good or efficient or convenient care, particularly for people who are disenfranchised. And so that's not really my field, but it's really out there. Like it's an education field, it's a workforce issue. But I feel that uh, it's hard to go to graduate school and then come out and make $50,000. And you borrowed, I don't know how many, how much money to do it. 
So I think that in the future, healthcare is really going to hurt, not necessarily the top of the license, because as a physician, I get lots of status. I am well-paid, I'm well-respected. So I think there will always be people that are interested in being physicians. But all the other jobs that make healthcare happen, we need to figure out how we're going to support it. Because paying people $16 an hour to be a receptionist in a doctor's office, or that's just not tenable. And so I really think that the workforce issue is something that the market is not going to solve. Anything you want to ask me? Yeah, I'm curious. Do you miss not being like a front line, like and getting your hands dirty in the ICU or yeah. something like that? That's a really good question. Yes, it, I really enjoyed direct care. Whether I was a nurse or a paramedic or I really enjoyed it. It's, I loved being part of people's lives for a few minutes. And I've said before, I, it's a license to be nosy. And I also like that it was, it was, I only so much I could handle, but I really enjoyed it and I was good at it. Um, but then I discovered organizations and I felt my, my ability, my impact was greater as I got into leadership. And now, with having disabilities, I just couldn't do it. Like when COVID started, I was like, I should volunteer. I should go back to work. I'm a nurse. And my wife is like, yeah, she's holding me up as I'm turning quickly and look like I'm going to fall over. And she said, yeah, you're going to put your back on, use your two canes. And you know, you're gonna help. What are you gonna do this? I think the challenge now is to stay in touch with the front line. Like I think that's what's really hard. The higher up you get for me, the more work it is to stay relevant and to listen. What are the patients? thinking, what are people thinking? What are the caregivers thinking? What are the community services? What are they dealing with? And so really the bad thing about not being on the front line myself is I get out of touch and I'm full of myself. I'm such a smart guy, <laughs> but I'm not, I am, but it's, it's work to what do I know about the life of somebody who just came from the Congo? What do I know about the life of a 13-year-old? Um, so it's there's so much I don't know. And so I felt like direct care, really, then you're in it. You're in it up to your eyeballs, giving yourself, giving a half a chance. You're in it up to your eye. You have to pay attention. All right. Thank you. 
I really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you, Danny. All right, take take care. care. Bye. Wouldn't you want to be on Kiyami's team? He profoundly appreciates his staff from top to bottom, from side to side. He loves the center's patients and feels for their life challenges. He takes his own non-American healthcare experience in the Congo and Switzerland for a non-native experience of healthcare. Something like Trevor Noah on The Daily Show, looking at politics from his South African orientation. Kiyami understands what he can control and what he can't, and focuses appropriately. He values the integrated framework and mission of FQHCs and weeps with its under-realized potential. Where have you seen great leadership in integrated healthcare? Please share. Thanks. I host, write, edit, engineer, and produce Health Hats, the podcast. Kayla Nelson provides website and social media consultation and creates video trailers. Joey Van Leeuwen supplies musical support, especially for the podcast intro and outro. I play Barry Sachs on some episodes alone or with the Lechuga Fresca Latin Band. I'm grateful to you who have the most critical roles as listeners, readers, and watchers. See the show notes, previous podcasts, and other resources through my website, www.health-hats.com, and my YouTube channel. Please subscribe and contribute. If you like it, share it. See you around the block.